This is the word of the Lord. I heard it. And thanks be to God. <laughs> this is high drama. Chapter 8, you get this intense back and forth um, where there becomes some name calling, you know? Um, you are possessed by a demon. Well, no, you are actually children of Satan himself. And like it's back and forth, um, comes to this climactic point where they want to they stone Jesus. They want to throw rocks at him until he is dead. Um, and speaking of high drama, this week we cashed in on some Christmas gifts and the generosity of some dear friends. We took our kids to a theme park. Um, and I'm going to try to not name any names here um, because one of them is getting old enough that he, he probably shouldn't have these stories told. But while I can, I'm going to just get everything I can out of it. But um, this week, this, this individual who lives very close to me, like across the house from me, um, has been so excited because at the end of the week, we're going to this theme park. This, this individual has never been to this theme park. This is a real theme park, like real theme park. And so just the excitement, I kid you not, like his first words in the morning when he wakes up are about this theme park. His last words before he goes to bed are about this theme park. There's a million questions and also, what are you most excited about? The same thing I was most excited about five minutes ago when you asked me. And it's just over and over and over. It was all this just kind of just building up. The anticipation was off the charts. I mean, we had to pull out the measuring tape numerous times just in case he shrunk a little um, to make sure that he's still at the height where he's going to be able to ride these particular rides that he wants to get on. And so this really comes down to there are a couple roller coasters that he's heard about. He's talked with his friends at school about it, and, and he's convinced they're all scared of them, but he's going to be brave. He is excited. He's going to love this. He's going on these roller coasters. Um, he even brings extra socks to shove into his shoes just to make sure that like, he's, he's good to go and everything. And so um, we get to the very last ride of the day. Like The park is going to close in less than an hour. Um, there's this roller coaster that's themed after dinosaurs and stuff, and, and he wants to go on this thing. He's been talking about it all day long and all this stuff. And the ride line, um, it says that it's a 50-minute wait. And we're like, well, this is it, buddy. Like, we get in that line. This is the last thing. And he is all for it. So me and him, we're in line. Um, it's a long line. We're going through and everything I'm watching is like the time is ticking. Like it's getting close to time for the park to close. But I'm watching him because like he's been making all of these claims all week long about how he is so excited. He's not scared. He's going to love it. It's going to be amazing. But like I can see the nervousness building and everything. And, and so what am I doing in this moment? I'm just waiting. Just like this is, this is going to be amazing. We're waiting for it. And so we get up there, kid you not, we're like right around the corner from where you would be able to visually see the, the ride to get on. We're in line and the line stops moving. And we're like, this, okay, okay. And then the, the announcement comes on. We're sorry, there's a delay and all this stuff. I'm like, oh, this is, this is going to be really bad. And I'm like, how am I going to get him when he has been so stoked about this for so long and making these big, bold claims about how he's going to love it and everything. And I don't get to see the payoff of like, does he love it and all this stuff. Like, and finally, the ride starts going again. We get over there. Like, we're on the, on the ride. They check his height. And he's got this massive grin on like, they don't know. I've got socks in my shoes. And I'm like, well, you're, you're actually like a solid two inches bigger and those socks didn't help. But anyway, so... We get over there, and we sit down on this roller coaster. Thing comes down, straps us in. Like a good dad, I reach over, make sure it's not going to fly off, and he's not going to go flying out and all this stuff. And like, I'm looking at him and just watching, like, you made some big claims this week, buddy. You ready for this? And it starts to move forward. And it's like the anticipation of, like, what's going to happen? You going to hold strong with all those claims, big guy? Like, what's going to happen? And we take off. But here's the thing. If we go back into this story, 
is the, the high drama of chapter 8. If, if you know what's happening, if you've been reading through the Gospel of John, then you understand that the context of this, this little back and forth fighting between Jesus and these Jews, um, this comes about because Jesus has made some claims. This is taking place in what's a week-long festival of shelters. It's an event on the annual calendar, and this is one of the three required pilgrimages of the Jews that they would all, if they're able, come to Jerusalem, and they would participate in this festival. It's a week-long festival. It's called the Festival of Shelters, um, or also known as the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. You may have heard it said as those. Um, But in this event, what they're doing is they're coming together in Jerusalem and they're trying to commemorate what happened historically for the Israelites in the Exodus, that they were taken out of their enslavement and oppression in Egypt and brought out to the promised land. But between being in Egypt and being in the promised land, you have the wilderness wanderings, you have the time of them just migrating out, um, but then also because of their disobedience and their lack of faith, um, one generation basically has to die off for the next generation to go in. But in the midst of that, while they're in the wilderness, They dwell in tents, these basically makeshift huts, because they're constantly on the move. They're a nomadic people. They're moving here and there. And so while they're in these tents and everything, God provides in miraculous ways. And so this annual festival is to recall that. And so people would have their actual homes, but then just outside their home, they would build a little tent. And they would actually, some of them would sleep in that tent. Basically, all of them would eat in that tent. They would do things in that tent to commemorate and to remember, to kind of reimmerse themselves in the story of the time when God took them out of their enslavement, when God was their salvation. And so they do this annually so that they don't forget what it was like as a people group to live in tents. And so they do all these different things. There's four species of plants that they would have, and they do different ceremonies with those and things like that. But annually in this time, um, light and water would be major elements of this festival. Light and water. And so the light was a way of remembering that when they were being taken out of Egypt and into the promised land, God would lead them through the wilderness through this column of fire, this light. And so they would see the light and know that's the presence of God and we follow that. And so it would give them direction. It would lead them out of danger and on to where they should be. Or when they get the ultimate provision of direction from Mount Sinai, as they're looking up and Moses has gone up the mountain and they see the cloud of glory, they see lightning. They see light flashing all around. And so light is commemorated in this festival during this time because light is significant in their salvation in bringing them out of this. And so what this means is there would be a time when in the court of women, a part of the temple, one of the largest areas, there would be this massive ceremony, this dancing ceremony. Like it's a massive party. There's music, but you have all these young men who have torches and fire. There's real fire. And so they're doing these intricate dances and stuff. This would take place in the evening as darkness has come down. And so they're celebrating light and remembering that God was our light. He brought us out. So we had something to see and we would follow him out. And so light is a huge deal here. Water is also a huge deal because in the wilderness, at a point when they thought that they were going to die because they couldn't find water and they're thirsty, um, Moses was told to speak to a rock. You remember? Instead, he strikes the rock, but out of the rock, dry rock, it's stone, suddenly water bursts forth and water is provided to keep them alive, to quench their thirst. And so to commemorate that, the high priest at one point would come and have this formal procession where he would leave the temple and he would walk down the city, literally going down, and he would go down to the pool of Siloam. 
Mapula Siloam is actually fed by uh, a spring from Gihon. And this is actually what, um, if, you, if you're a Bible nerd, or you've ever been to Israel, um, King Hezekiah actually <laughs> dug these tunnels and kept the spring coming underground so it's protected. So when Jerusalem is under siege, they would have water that was protected, access to water. And so the priest would come down to the Pool of Siloam, take water, and then bring that back to the temple and come, and this would coincide with the morning sacrifice of a lamb. And so morning sacrifice of a lamb would involve the slaughter of a lamb, this lamb being presented on an altar as an offering to God, and a, a wine libation, where they would take wine and pour it out on one side. And so the priest would come with this water libation, and as the wine was flowing on one side, he would pour the water on the other. And that's the only time during the year that water was offered in such a way. And so water and light are major events here. They're to help them to think about the context of what they're commemorating, what they are to celebrate, remembering God's salvation. And so now, if you know that in the context that they're at this festival and huge elements of water and light are involved, now it makes sense to hear Jesus' famous claims that he makes then when he says, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. At a time when they're to remember and celebrate light, because light was the very presence of God leading us out of darkness, leading us out of our enslavement and everything, and now Jesus stands up and says, I'm the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness. What? Or on the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. So water and light. Jesus makes these claims that would be so significant because everything that they're thinking of is, this is what God did for us. And so light, fire, all these things, we're remembering that God was the light for us. And water, that God miraculously gave us water when we would have died. And here's Jesus saying, hey, I'm the light of the world. And guess what? Come to me if you're thirsty. Because if you come to me, you'll never be thirsty again. Water will well up out of you from deep within you and flow forever. What? What are these claims? These are high claims, Jesus. These are such high claims, making these famous claims. And they lead to that throwdown of words that you heard read before we started here. This explosive back and forth. And yet, it's when he makes yet another claim when he says, Truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. It's at that point that they pick up rocks and they're ready to hurl them at Jesus and try to kill him. But he escapes. And so if you weren't with us last week, I would encourage you to go back. But this, this statement, I am, is very significant because this is Jesus invoking the, the divine name of Yahweh. That when God revealed himself to Moses in a burning bush that was not being consumed, this doesn't make sense to us. Like fire needs fuel and it depletes that fuel. It consumes that fuel and needs more. And yet here's a bush that's on fire and yet it's not being consumed. And God speaks to Moses out of that. And when Moses asks, who do I say sent me? He says, I am that I am. Yahweh, the divine name is given to us. I am that I am. He, this is his aseity. This is his transcendence that he does not need anything. He's not contingent on anything in creation. And yet he's eminent. A transcendent God who is eminent and with us, wanting us to know him. is the beauty of Yahweh that he would reveal himself to us. And so when Jesus makes this grammatically weird statement, before Abraham was, I am, he is saying, I am Yahweh. I am the one who spoke out of that burning bush that was not consumed. Yes, I was the light 
leading you out of the darkness. I was the water that gave you life. He's making massive claims. And so I want to ask you today, do you believe these claims? Do you actually believe that Jesus is light who will lead you out of darkness? Do you believe that he can quench your thirst forevermore, that eternal life will spring and well up out of you? Do you believe this? Do you experience this? In your life, in your faith, do you experience that Jesus really is light? When the world can be so dark, you have this light that leads you on. Do you experience the satisfaction of drinking deeply of the God who says, come to me. You'll never be thirsty again. Like this streams of living water will flow up out of you. Do you believe it? Do you experience it? And so with all of that established, let's look at what comes just after this. Turn with me to John chapter 9. So on the heels of this argument that started because of these massive claims that Jesus made in the context of this festival, look at John chapter 9, starting in the first verse. Remember, they just picked up stones. They want to kill him. And now watch. As he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. So Jesus... As Jesus was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. And do you see the beautiful contrast that John has drawn here for us right off the get-go? Jesus saw a blind man. And maybe you need to hear that today. And whatever you're stuck in, whatever you are utterly incapable of doing, that God is able. That Jesus saw a blind man. God's ability and our inability in collision. Jesus saw a blind man. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So the disciples, they're following Jesus. And like, we got to get out of here. They're trying to kill you. And so they're probably thinking like, push him along. Let's go. Let's stay around him. Like, keep moving. But Jesus all of a sudden locks eyes on a guy whose eyes can't lock onto anything. He sees a blind man. His disciples around him, they realize what's happening. And they're like, mm, man, that's, that's rough. Like, that's so sad. But here's my opportunity. I'm going to ask him. Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Because here's the conundrum, like, did he do it? Is it his fault? But he was born this way, so was it his parents' fault? It's a theological conundrum. They have this question, what is the relationship between suffering and sin? Is it this guy's fault, or is it his parents' fault? Is it personal? Is it possibly generational? Seems anachronistic, like this is out of order, or is it because, like, God knows all things, and so he's like, I know you're going to do a bad thing at this point, so I'm going to go ahead and make you suffer now. They have all these questions. We have the same questions. Why? Why am I hurting? Why am I suffering? Why is she hurting? Why is she suffering? All these bad things that happen, we want to know why. And what is the relationship between that and sin? And Jesus responds and says, actually, it's not because of sin. We're so quick to think that our suffering is related to our sin, and sometimes it is. And yet there are times when Jesus says, no, it's actually not because of sin. This is not because he sinned or his parents. It's so that the glory of God would be displayed in him. And sometimes our suffering is for God's glory. And yet, the beauty and comfort of that is God's glory is always for our good as his people. 
And this is at the heart, uh, this could take so much time, but at the heart of all the rewards that Jesus promises. The rewards are given as we are obedient. And we're obedient in a way that brings glory to God. And so there's always this just correlation that's inseparable between God being glorified and it being for our good, even when it looks like it's hurt, when it looks like it's suffering, when it looks like it's pain and loss. The promise of Scripture is all things work together for the good of those who love him, are called according to his purpose. It's for our good. It's for this man's good that he suffered for so long. And that's not, we should never just gloss over that and say like, oh, I get it, yeah, yeah. No, there's profound mystery in this. There's profound tension in this that we cannot resolve. And yet we can trust God that he is good and believe his promise that all things work according to the counsel of his will. He is for us. He loves us. Jesus wants them to know it's not about this man sinning or his parents sinning. It's about the glory of God. And now look what happens. Verse six, after he said these things, he spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva and spread the mud on his eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he left, washed and came back seeing. A blind man left and came back seeing. This is amazing. Um, in the words of a song that's a little too odd for us to sing probably, but I love it. And, and just, but the, the song has this line, the blind won't gain their sight by opening their eyes. The blind won't gain their sight by opening their eyes. What could this blind man do to make himself see? Nothing. He could do nothing. But apparently, with a little bit of spit from Jesus, some mud, washing that, kind of pushing it down into the crevices of your eye sockets, and then go wash in the pool of Siloam, and you can see. This is amazing. So look at verse 8. His neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar said, isn't this the one who used to sit begging? Some said, he's the one. Others were saying, nobody looks like him. He kept saying, I'm the one. So they asked him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes and told me, go to Siloam and wash. So when I went and washed, I received my sight. Where is he? They asked. I don't know, he said. Word is spreading. People recognize this was the guy who was blind and was a beggar, and yet now somehow his eyes are open. They ask him, how did this happen? And he, without hesitation, says, Jesus did it. I don't know where he is now, but Jesus did it. He has no hesitation. And so now, verse 13, they brought the man who used to be blind to the Pharisees. Remember, the Pharisees, really, really good rule followers. They care a lot about appearance. The day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was a Sabbath. At this point, you remember, oh, that's going to be a problem. This is their favorite thing to, to get upset about. Verse 15, then the Pharisees asked him again how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, he told them. I washed, and I can see. Before we go on, just think about the absurdity of that. Have you ever spent time around someone blind? Like, imagine. Like, I don't, I don't know about you, but anytime I'm around somebody who's blind, I just can't settle down. There's just this constant fear. No matter how relaxed they look and no matter how trusting they are of the person leading them or the cane they're using or whatever, it's just like, oh, oh, like, I want to move everything out of the way. Like, there's just this ongoing tension and there's just no hope. Like, I've never looked at somebody's blind and thought, you know what? They might blink and then suddenly see everything. 
It just seems like a, a like just hopeless thing. And so imagine these people for years and years and years, they have seen this man totally blind. And if you've looked into the eyes of someone who's blind, there's usually a visible difference in their eyes. And so to see this man, but he has never seen me. And as I walk by every day and he's begging, to suddenly this day, as I walk by, the guy is up, it's him. And his eyes are open, he locked eyes with me. And he starts talking to me. And he's navigating everything. Like He actually sees the difference in where he's stepping. He's not just like feeling around. He's walking around looking at things. And probably with great wonder and amazement. That's what orange is. What a cool color. This is amazing. And here are these Pharisees. Like, how did he do it? He rubbed mud in my eyes. <laughs> this is not what I expect. Like, I've had friends do the LASIK surgery and stuff. Ask Josh. That sounds terrifying. But it's like torture. I don't know. But that's amazing. I can believe that. But if Josh came to me a year ago, what, I don't know, a year or two ago, and suddenly he doesn't need contacts, he doesn't need glasses, and he can read better than I can now. But if I ask him, how did that happen? And instead of telling me the torture device and everything that was used in his surgery, he said, this guy spit on the ground, <laughs> rubbed it around in the dirt, picked up that mud and smeared it in my eyes, and I let him. I don't know. <laughs> like, you got problems, dude. Like, this isn't good. That's what he says. Yeah. Put mud on my eyes, he told him. I washed, and I can see. 16. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a sinful man perform such signs? And there was a division among them. Again, they asked the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He's a prophet, he said. He's a prophet. So the Pharisees get involved. This happens on a Sabbath, a day of rest. And that is a no-go in their minds. And so the Pharisees now lower Jesus to just being a man that cannot be from God because he did something on the Sabbath. Whereas the healed man elevates Jesus to being a prophet. And so there's a huge difference in the way that they're responding. And now look at 18. The Jews did not believe this about him, that he was blind and received sight until they summoned the parents of the one who had received a sight. They asked them, is this your son, the one you say was born blind? How then does he now see? We know this is our son, and that he was born blind, his parents answered, but we don't know how he now sees, and we don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jews, since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him as the Messiah, he would be banned from the synagogue. This is why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So a second time, they summoned the man who had been blind and told him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I can see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I already told you, he said, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? <laughs> they ridiculed him. You're that man's disciple, but we're Moses' disciples. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but this man, we don't know where he's from. This is an amazing thing, the man told them. You don't know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. 
We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. You were born entirely in sin, they replied. And are you trying to teach us? Then they threw him out. They got the rinse involved. Found his parents. Tell us what's going on here. Is this your son? He was blind? Well, yeah, that's my son. Yeah, I, he was blind. He, he was born blind. I have no idea how he can see. You know what? He, he's 18 or older. Go ask him. This is on him. They're scared. They deflect. They put it back on their son. And yet when their son is challenged, he doesn't back down. And in fact, he pushes back. He pushes back in defense of Jesus. He, he ridicules them. Like, you're asking a lot of questions. You seem highly interested. Would you like to know him too? Would you like to follow him too? I could introduce you. No, 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 no. You're his disciple. We're disciples of Moses. We follow the law. And this man broke the law. He healed a man on the Sabbath. How absurd. But there's this division. And so I want you to see this again in context. Um, this is the, the festival of, of booths or of tabernacles. This is the festival of shelters. And so in that, um, this is known in the book of John as the festival cycle. And so um, we had the Cana cycle, started with the wedding, um, the sign of the wine and so forth, the wedding at Cana. And we wrapped up, coming back to Cana, and then we started the festival cycle. This is where Pastor Tim started us off with Jesus healing the lame man. You recall the lame man being healed. And as the lame man is healed, the festival cycle is kicked off, and now we are concluding the festival cycle, which again concludes with a sign of a man being healed, this man being blind. And so if we put these two together as bookends, as John has put us here, um, recall that both are healed on the Sabbath, and that creates issue for the Pharisees. Both men being healed on the Sabbath. The lame man at the start of this cycle is ungrateful. He blames Jesus when he is challenged. He distances himself from Jesus, and Jesus shows up to him again and says, sin no more so nothing worse happens. Pretty negative experience. And yet here on the backside of the festival cycle, there's a blind man who Jesus heals and the blind man defends Jesus. He elevates him and calls him a prophet. He identifies himself as a disciple of Jesus. And Jesus is the one who told him, it was not your sin or your parents' sin that caused this, but so that the glory of God might be displayed in you. And so we should put these together and see such a beautiful marked difference. And we should be challenged, how will I respond then? When I hear these high claims of Jesus, how will I respond to these claims of Jesus? And we, like the blind man, need to respond in faith because by faith we see who Jesus is. It is by faith that we will see who Jesus is. And so we're sitting on a roller coaster and I look at him and I say, are you ready, buddy? <laughs> He's all ecstatic. He's ready to go, but I can see the nervousness. The color's kind of paling a little. He's looking around like, oh man, this seat seems really big and that's a lot of scary noises going on and we're, we're starting to inch forward and there's this big tunnel and there's lights going down it and as we start to move forward, I'm looking over at him and he suddenly, for someone who wants to talk all the time, is very quiet. <laughs> very, very quiet. And I'm just thinking, this is the moment. Little man is really struggling with some self-awareness in life. Like, this is the moment. Like, you got to be present for it. Like, are we going to live up to these claims? 
And that thing took off, and I watched his eyes go from normal to <laughs> And he is gripping that seat, and it's awesome. I love adrenaline. What a gift from God. <laughs> I love it. And we are flying, and it's spinning. It's going upside down and everything. And I look over at him, and I can hardly see him. He is tucked so far back in there. His face is sideways, and his eyes are, like, squinted closed. So I smack him, and I'm, I'm trying to tell him, like, hey, pretend like you're driving, and it's not as scary. And he, but he, he, I'm joking, I'm joking. And I look over a couple more times at different points, and he is just like, yeah. <laughs> all those claims, all those claims. We, get, we finally get off, and I'm just like, yeah, adrenaline, oh, I love this. And um, we're, we're walking off, and, and he's like very slowly coming out of his calmed state where he's coming back to Chatterbox and everything. And I was like, did you like it? And he's like, oh, yeah. And I was like, you didn't look like you liked it. <laughs> and, and he's like, oh, I was joking with you. Because he knows a story of another pastor who I went on a roller coaster with who passed out, but that's a story for another day. Um, he, so he tells me that he was joking with me with his eyes closed. I'm like, well, you had your eyes closed a lot of that ride, buddy. And he's like, no, 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 it's just, just a joke, just a joke. And so as we walk out, you know, they have the pictures of you. And we're the first ones coming off this thing. And the guy has our picture put up on the big screen. And he points to it. And I was like, look at that. Because <laughs> my eyes are like, yeah. And Leland is, oh. <laughs> like, just a few seconds for a joke, huh? Yeah. Somehow he knew the camera was going to be right there. It was amazing, but, you know, couldn't live up to the claims. The claims did not match reality, even though now he's fully convinced that he loved it. The claims did not match up to reality. And so, again, remember the context here, the festival of shelters, these massive elements of light and water, and Jesus makes claims, I'm the light of the world. Anyone who comes to me thirsty, you'll never be thirsty again. Jesus makes these high claims, and then we have to say, well, do they match up to reality? And then you watch what happens as he walks away after saying, before Abraham was, I am. This happens on the heels of that argument when he says, I am. Meaning he is Yahweh. He is the creator who was not created. And what does he do when he encounters a blind man? He spits on the ground and takes the mud that is formed and wipes it in the guy's eyes, which is so reminiscent of in the beginning. When God created all things, he spoke things into existence, and yet with man, he formed out of the dust of the earth. And so as this guy, Jesus, says, before Abraham was, I am, and the room says, you just called yourself God, pick up a rock because we're killing you. Can you live up to such a claim? And Jesus sees a blind man, spits on the dirt, takes the dust of the earth, and provides life and recreation. He can live up to the claim. Do you need God to bring life to something that's dead in you or around you? Do you know that he has the power to do that? He is I am. He is Yahweh. He is the one who can create. He has the power to do so. He lives up to the claim. He says he's the light of the world. And who does he pick to heal? Because you know there were so many people in desperate need of healing in Jerusalem. And yet, who does Jesus see that he wants to heal as he's made these claims and he's walking away from people who want to kill him? A blind man. A man who has no sight, who cannot see where to go. And in a festival where they celebrate light that would lead them out when they don't know where to go, Jesus says, I'll live up to the claim. And he gives the man sight 
that he can see now. And water. Did you catch where he told the man to go? To the pool of Salom, which is exactly where that priest would have marched the procession down to get this water. That's to remind them of the thirst being quenched in the wilderness. And Jesus says, watch this. I'll live up to the claim. Go wash in that water. And he comes back seeing. Because Jesus can live up to his claims. So are you hearing him? Do you hear the promises of God? And do you believe them? Have you actually watched to see that he can live up to the claims? That he's here with us. Because when he says this welling of water that will come out in streams everlasting, everlasting, forever, John gives us a little anecdotal just narrative note there that says he's speaking about the spirit that would be given to us. This is the very presence of God is now with us, sealing us with the promise for the day of redemption and yet now empowering us so that we can live in this, that he's with us. God is with us. And so look and see because by faith we see who he is. Let's be like the blind man who had to act on his faith, actually. Jesus Jesus has the power to heal him. He rubs mud in his eyes and tells him, go to the pool of Siloam. And that blind man had to actually do that. So are you dragging your feet on something God has told you to do? That's responding to him in faith right now, to receive salvation forever, the forgiveness of your sins as you turn from your sin and turn to him, the one who has the power to save you. Or is it an act of obedience that God is telling you to do something, to engage in some act of justice or mercy, to let go of some sin that you're holding on to? Whatever it is, will you walk in obedience and faith like this man? Because we'll see him clearly in faith. We have to respond just like this man to seeing who he is. As a man comes back and encounters Jesus again, look at verse 35 as we conclude. Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out. And when he found him, he asked, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him, he asked. Jesus answered, you have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. I believe, Lord, he said. And he worshiped him. Believe in him. Believe his claims. Confess him. Confess him to be who he said he is and then worship him as you see that it is true. He is worthy of all of our worship. So skeptic, you don't know if you believe any of this. Doubting saint, struggling saint, stuck in your sin. Seeker, you want to know what's true. When you see Jesus lifted up and his promises that he will draw men to himself. Will you see him and respond to him? He matches the reality of what he has claimed. A follower of Jesus, what a God we serve. Who do you need to share this good news with? Will you do that this week? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you that you would love us when we were unlovely. You would come to us, Jesus, and Spirit, you would stay with us as you were sent so that we could have flowing streams of water welling up out of us to now go to the world and bring life. 
So God, would you help us to be faithful in that, like this blind man, to, to not balk at defending you or speaking of you, to be associated with you. Um, give, give us greater faith. Open our eyes to see like you open the eyes of this man. If there's anyone here who does not yet know you, who does not know the salvation that you have come to provide for us, would you give them a new heart? Open their eyes in faith. Rub some mud in there. Wash them in the water of your word. Bring faith and life forevermore. Because you are the light of the world. And let us reflect that always. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.